and welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast, produced in partnership with the A.B. Corcor Foundation for Mental Health. I'm Terry, the creator and co-host of this podcast. I've lived with depression most of my life, and I know how easy it can be to feel all alone in the experience. I'm not alone, and you aren't either. And I'm Dr. Anita Sands, a licensed clinical psychologist with a number of my own diagnoses, all of which bring a certain amount of anxiety and depression along with them. There is great power in shared experiences. We share our own as we engage in intimate and candid conversations with our weekly guests, exploring different perspectives on and experiences with depression. We keep it real because depression is real. We keep it hopeful because there truly is hope in spite of what depression tells you. Hi, Terry. Hi, Anita. So as we continue our focus on Suicide Prevention Awareness Month, today we're going to hear a story of hope and recovery from a suicide attempt survivor. Stories like the one you're about to hear help replace shame with a sense of authority and empowerment. Our guest is Mark Hennick, who you may remember from last week's episode 270. Not everything you hear about suicide is true. Mark's early life was one of struggle, stigma, and misunderstood symptoms. And after being literally pulled back from the brink of death by a stranger, he made the choice and did the hard work to become a person who pulls others back, giving hope through his experience for another chance at life. We know Mark's story resonates with people because the TEDx talk he did called Why We Choose Suicide has been played nearly 7 million times. And remember, views represent real people. People who found a video on suicide and tuned in because they needed to hear and learn something about an often avoided subject. So here again is Mark Hennick in an interview originally recorded five years ago, giving his voice to depression. Mark first started dealing with depression and anxiety when he was in elementary school and could still tell his age by holding up fingers. Uh, and then by the time I got to 12 or so, things started to get uh, a whole lot worse. And, you know, growing up in a small town, especially as a, as a boy, um, it, it wasn't the type of thing that we talked about, certainly not then. I mean, it's barely something that we talk about now, uh, although we've come a long way. Even when someone doesn't have or use the right words to explain what's going on, mental health struggles often make themselves evident. One indicator is a change in school or work performance. Because it turns out when all this stuff is happening in your head, your attention is like a spotlight. You can only point it at one thing at a time. And if it's so focused on your anxiety and depression, other things are going to start to fall away. Mark vividly remembers that spotlight being blinding during a test at school. Uh, so instead, what I did, since I didn't know any of the answers and, and my mind had completely blanked out, I started doodling pictures in the margins of the empty test, and I drew 10 different ways that I could kill myself. And that was the first time that the stuff that had been happening inside me ever came out in some way, ever was expressed. I didn't ask for help, but it was certainly a cry for help. You know, you can't bottle those things up forever. They're going to come out eventually in some way. And as you might expect, that caught the teacher's attention. But neither she nor the guidance counselor she sent him to were trained or equipped to handle the situation. Mark ended up in the hospital 
where he was determined to be suicidal. And while it would be wonderful to be able to say young Mark was properly treated, medicated, and counseled so he could live happily ever after. Yeah, I wish I could say that that was uh, super helpful. (laughs) You know, I I think most people who have received, or, you know, I can only really talk from my personal experience, but from what I've heard in, in doing this, most people who go to hospital for acute psychiatric treatment, that's not what suddenly leads to their recovery. You know, people with mental health problems don't get better in that way, or at least they don't get cured in hospital. Uh, hospital is a way to keep people safe. Uh, and actually, oftentimes, as happened with me, uh, it can be really quite traumatizing, actually. Between the ages of 12 and 17, Mark made several suicide attempts, leading to several more trips to the hospital. Until eventually it, it culminated in, into uh, uh, finding myself on the edge of a bridge uh, late one night uh, where I had a plan to jump. Uh, and if it wasn't for a complete stranger who arrived and uh, who actually physically grabbed me when I let go of the railing and, and pulled me back, um, you know, if, if it wasn't for that, I never would have uh, survived, certainly. So when you're uh, in this place of emotional scarcity, uh, that's the only thing you can focus on is getting your needs met in whatever way possible to be able to relieve yourself of this burden. Uh, and for me, since I had no other tools, the thing that I became fixated on was suicide. And now I almost think of it as uh, becoming addicted to suicide in some ways because I had no other coping mechanisms. Nobody had ever taught me uh, any other coping mechanism. So it wasn't that I wanted to die for death's sake. Uh, it's that I didn't want to live that way anymore. And I had no idea how else to get out of it. But because of the environment you were in and the time you were in, you didn't see all of that as a failure of the system? You saw it as a failure of yours? Absolutely. And, and you know, especially... Uh, once you become, as they say, unflatteringly, a frequent flyer in the mental health system, uh, which is when you come in and out so many times because you're not getting the help that you need, uh, you start to think that you're unhelpable, uh, that you're fundamentally broken and different, and that you'll never be redeemed. So it actually ends up making it worse uh, in many ways. And by the time I you know, got to my, my last attempt, that's exactly how I felt. I felt like I had reached out for help in the only ways I knew how, that nobody could help me. And actually, by that point, by the end, I thought that everybody had just written me off, that, you know, I'd I'd never amount to anything, that uh, all the newspapers and and media reports were telling me that I was probably going to grow up to be a serial killer or a rapist or an arsonist or some other criminal, uh, which, of course, people with mental health problems and illnesses aren't any more violent than anybody else. Actually, they tend to be victims of violence more often, but that's not the narrative that you hear. Um, So by the end, I felt like if doctors even can't help me, then, then nobody can. But after the stranger pulled him to safety, something in Mark shifted. He chose to be, and now is, like that stranger, a person who gets behind people and reaches out to help them survive. That's what I've been doing ever since, once I found that purpose to to share my stories about attempted suicide, about the struggles of of my depression and anxiety, uh, to really um, use that to break down the stigma, uh, which then gives people permission to to speak up and speak out. And and that's what's given me the, the purpose that's kept me alive, I think. So it's from that perspective that we asked Mark what we can do as adults, as parents, as society, to make the world a safer place for those of us with mental health challenges, starting at a young age. Almost everywhere, it seems like, the community's approach to suicide prevention uh, is to building 
uh, fences and and uh, means restriction it's called on bridges uh, and putting phones on bridges essentially i think of it as and don't get me wrong that stuff is necessary it does work but it's like lining up the ambulances at the bottom of the bridge but we need to be preventing people from ever going there in the first place because once you open up that cognitive pathway in your mind once you unlock that way of thinking it's very difficult to unthink about suicide you know it's i've long since achieved a good place in my recovery and i've learned so much from these experiences but i can't forget that i used to be suicidal you know i can't i can't just grow that pathway over in my mind again Uh, it would have been helpful had i never built it in the first place so mark advocates for early intervention way upstream Teaching kids about their emotions, for example, how to name and label their feelings, uh, how to cope with stressors and, um, and emotional distress in more uh, constructive ways. These are all really basic skills that we can teach kids from a very early age that can help to avoid these things much further downstream. And do you believe that if you had been able to say, had, had perhaps even known how to say, I'm having very dark thoughts, I'm stuck mm-hmm. in this loop, um, I, I think something's wrong, that if your parents or any other adult had responded in what I'll judgmentally call an appropriate way, yeah. that it would have ended differently for you? I think it would have helped. Um, you know, I, I um, on one part of me would say, well, avoiding trauma uh, would be a great way to avoid the, the mental health problems that result. Um, but, you know, realistically speaking, if, if we're not able to present uh, to prevent all bad things that happen to everybody, um, then giving them the tools uh, more effectively to deal with those, giving them the safety uh, to work through these kinds of issues. And, and we're still really not doing that. You know, why isn't there mandatory mental health education in every school? Since we know that it'll impact your productivity, the way that you work, how effective you are, it'll reduce how much uh, of the healthcare system you use, it'll reduce police interactions. Just if we give people a better understanding of their emotions and, and how to uh, better manage and handle them. So I think there are systemic uh, ways to, to help people uh, that we're still not doing as well. So we ask Mark that very question. Why isn't there mandatory mental health education in every school? You know, it's a it's a long term investment, uh, and in certainly a political landscape that happens in four year or, or two year cycles, or even perpetually political. Um, I don't think that people really have that long view that if we invest in elementary age kids or or in uh, prenatal care, even to go back that far, um, that it's going to have benefits twenty years downstream, thirty, forty lifetime benefits downstream. I don't think most politicians who are holding the purse strings are or exactly thinking that far. And I, and I think that's the real tragedy because life happens in long term. It doesn't happen in election cycles. And if we start teaching and talking about mental health and coping strategies and how to support ourselves and each other, that will impact generations to come and could, and I don't say this naively or lightly, could change the world. So I think that if we were to do that, if we were to um, invest in this kind of generational shift, I think you're right. It would reverberate uh, around the world, change eventually our companies, our schools, our our politics uh, in that way as people who are more resilient and more mentally healthy uh, start to age. That's not about avoiding struggle. It's not about um, avoiding every bad thing that might happen. Uh, It's about learning how to deal with it better. And that's what resilience is. Resilience isn't avoiding struggle. Resilience is bouncing back from struggle. Uh, And right now we need to be able to help people do that. So if anyone listening is aware of a program or organization that's successfully working toward that goal, 
please let us know, and we will profile it on a future episode. For now, though, we'll return our focus to ourselves, which we can work on right now. One of the reasons we originally reached out to Mark, before we even realized he was that TEDx talk guy, was because he wrote an article about getting really good at depression. And we wanted to know what he meant by that. I take medication. It happens to work for me. I also do therapy. That combination approach is, is generally the best approach. Uh, but I also leave room for the fact that I'm going to relapse from time to time. I'm still going to have hard days. Um, and you know everybody has hard days, but I mean, I'm still going to have days and weeks, sometimes months of depression and of anxiety where it actually interferes with my life. However, knowing that, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm uncurable anymore. Uh, in fact, I've actually been able to turn the tables on it and say, I've gotten through this before. Why wouldn't I get it through Get through it this time? And actually, every time I do, every time I get through it, I learn a little bit more each time about what helps me, um, what helps me to recognize uh, that it's coming on, what helps me to get out of it. Uh, sometimes it's just a matter of patience, realizing that, you know, this is going to be a tough couple of weeks, and that's okay. It's allowed to be a tough couple of weeks. I have depression. That's how it goes. You know, so I, I think it helps to give you perspective. Uh, it helps to shorten the relapses, I think, uh, knowing that, uh, that you actually have more power uh, over this thing than you think you do, uh, and that it just may be cyclical in nature. It may be episodic in nature, and that's okay. Not okay in a welcomed way, of course, just a realistic one. And then Mark implements the coping strategies that he has learned work for him. Well, first of all, recognizing that it's happening, I think, is key. And that seems like a simple thing, realizing, oh, you know, I'm depressed again. Well, it's actually not, because one of the functions of depression is that blinding effect. The depression doesn't want you to know that it's coming, <laughs> you know, because then you might do something to make it go away. It's, it's sneaky that way. Um, so I think recognizing, oh, you know, I haven't been quite myself for the last few weeks. Uh, I wonder what's going on here. You know, I'm, I'm withdrawing more. Part of it is recognizing what your individual manifestations of your diagnosis are, too, or whether or not you have a diagnosis. Uh, for me, it's withdrawing more, becoming more irritable, um, eating differently, less healthily, uh, for sure, um, interacting differently with people. So when I start to notice that trend happening, that shift from my baseline, uh, that's the first step uh, to then starting to implement some of my recovery strategies. I can give me more, give myself more time to complete tasks, for example, so I can focus on them better. Um, paying attention to my sleep, making sure I have a great, uh, or at least a better uh, sleep routine. I'm going to bed earlier, that I don't have my phone on my nightstand. And, and checking it late into the night, that I'm making a point of leaving the house at least once a day. You know, making some of these small changes um, uh, in my life that maybe have gone off the rails as a result of my depression. And then if necessary, and, and this has happened a handful of times, if I need to go back and talk to my doctor potentially about a change in my medication or if I need to onboard some therapy for a while, um, you know, there have been many uh, instances where I've, I've done that for anywhere from a few weeks to a few months. It's all knowing, getting a sense of how stuff you are in that moment, uh, and then how big of a chain you need to get pulled out of that, that stuck place. Oh, that is so worth repeating. It is all about getting a sense of how stuck you are and how big a chain you need to get pulled out of that stuck place. So, you know, I, I think that when I say grinding it out, sometimes that's just it. Realizing that, yeah, it, it's going to suck, but it sucks less over time uh, if you give yourself patience and space to do that and, and have the, the uh, 
metacognition, you have the higher level thinking enough to be able to realize that every struggle doesn't have to be the last struggle, uh, that this too shall pass. And that really, that uh, maybe that's faith, I don't know, not having the evidence to support that things will get better, but believing it anyway. Um, and I think that played an important part in my recovery, certainly in the early days. In, in my case, I was literally pulled off a bridge, but it's not like I then went to the hospital and found this amazing medication that changed my life or found this great therapist who unlocked all the secrets of happiness for me. Uh, it was actually a, a slow accumulation of, of positive reinforcement, I think, finding things that I was passionate about, uh, uh, being positively reinforced for that, and then repeating that cycle over and over again for years uh, until eventually you don't realize how far you've gone until you actually stop and look back. You know, you don't realize that you've recovered right away until you look back and realize, hey, it's been 15 years since I stood on the edge of that bridge and, and I actually like my life now and I'm actually happy. Oh, please let those words sink in because we need to know, we need to believe that someone, including ourselves, can go from where Mark was to where Mark is, liking his life and actually being happy. Remember that. Everything can change. So, Terry, I love that he repeatedly emphasizes the healthfulness of accepting that relapses are inevitable and not disastrous. And that's that's a very, very important point to point out for everybody, whether you're suffering from depression and suicidal thoughts or you love somebody who is. This is not a one and done. He even thinks sometimes there is that cyclical nature to it that, you know, the good times and the bad times. So just knowing that it's going to come back and not being like meh about it or anything, mm -hmm. but also not saying, oh, no, this is catastrophic, this is horrible, this is terrible, instead of just kind of going, okay, I see you, I got you, those symptoms are coming back, um, mm -hmm. what do I need to do to kick back in, you know, using that wellness recovery action plan that we that we did those right. two episodes on. I, I just think that can be so helpful to to take something out of a, you know, kind of this really critical place and where people are just agonizing over the fact that their depressive symptoms have returned and mm -hmm. instead use all of that energy instead to, to start battling them as, as mm -hmm. soon as you notice them coming back. And we could argue that that's self-stigma again, because any other mm -hmm. illness, it's not like, oh, damn it, you know, my throat hurts again. I am so, you know, I thought I was done with this. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, that happens all yeah. the time to me. So, mm -hmm. you know, when I start feeling, it's like, oh, here we go again. And I jump on it. And it's like, I know I need more sleep. I know I need all the little magical things I use. And magical yeah. is a funny word, but all the natural things that I have learned help me. And the same is true when I feel my depressive symptoms coming on, and God forbid those thoughts. So, yeah, I think that is a really good point mm -hmm. that it's... I, lo I love that, you're, that you are definitely conceptualizing that as self-stigma, because you're right. Who else would shame themselves for getting the flu right. again this year? Right. You know, it's sort of... Right. <laughs> and, and it's like, yes, you don't ever want to have to get the flu again, but, you know, when you get it, yeah. it's like, don't use all that energy being mad and upset that you that you have it. 
immediately turning towards self-care, getting yourself the things that you need to weather it mm-hmm. um, is, is, I know we've talked about that in many yep. other podcasts, but again, I just love that as somebody who really gets this stuff and wants other people to understand it, he's really saying we need to accept that relapses are normal, inevitable, nothing to be ashamed of, just things that we need to, mm-hmm. to deal with. Mm-hmm. And we will be back next week with the story of another suicide attempt survivor who also just offers such a unique perspective and and hope, which is, you know, what we're trying to do here without being bumper stickery or Hallmark cardy. <laughs> you know, I'll do respect to bumper stickers and Hallmark cards, but in, in this, you know, arena, it's like nobody needs toxic positivity, Terry, is what we're talking about. Yes. Yeah. No one needs toxic positivity <laughs> when we're talking about suicide. You know, this is just not that kind of a topic. But when people who've been there and in the bottom of the deepest of depression's pits and have gotten out. I think there is such enormous value in that. And so I'm so grateful Mm -hmm. to people like Mark and next week, Janine, who are going to share their stories with us. Okay. We truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding, helps you better articulate and reflect on your own experience with depression, or better understand how to support someone else who is struggling. If this episode has been of comfort or value to you, know that there are hundreds of others like it in our archive, which you can easily find at our website, givingvoicetodepression.com. And remember, if you're struggling, speak up, even if it's hard. If someone else is struggling, take the time to listen. 